Well, welcome to part four of our series on Connect and Tell. For the last uh, few weeks, if you've been here uh, for the last couple of Sundays, you'll know that I've been feeling impressed by God that this year that we're entering into uh, this new year, that part of the theme for Lake Effect Church would be this whole theme of Connect and Tell. If you've been here a while, you know that Lake Effect Church, our, our vision is that we are a church of people that know God and find freedom and discover purpose and make a difference. But I also feel that during this year, it's very important for us to take serious Jesus' last words that we commonly call the Great Commission. Five different places in the Bible, Jesus would tell his disciples what he expected them to do after he left. And so as a church, I want us to really take those words serious. So part of connect is because we need to connect with ourselves to understand our story and what we tell people. Also, we connect with God, and also we connect with other people and tell them the message of Jesus Christ. So today I want to read the Great Commission as the Apostle Matthew wrote it in Matthew 28. Where it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have, given, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. And that's the words that Jesus left to his, to his apostles and his disciples saying, go and tell this message and I will be with you. And oftentimes when we read this verse or we read the Great Commission, our first reaction is, what am I going to say? What am I going to say to people? How am I going to talk to them and how am I going to communicate? And that is a very important question that we will talk about a lot this year, about what do you actually say? But I think even as important as it is of what to say, we need to focus on, who do I need to be? What do I need to be like? I think oftentimes we get so focused on what we should say, we forget about exactly who we should be. And the Bible's kind of pretty clear to us that we actually need to be like Christ, that we need to be imitators of Christ. If we are going to be effective at sharing the message of Jesus Christ, we need to be imitators of Jesus Christ. So today I want to talk to you, how do we become that person that other people would want to actually listen to? Last week we talked a lot about the message from uh, John 15, that it talks about the vine and the branches, that we are to abide in Christ. And abide is kind of one of those old-fashioned words that simply means to remain or to stay or to dwell. And when I got done with my message last week, we talked a lot last week about how what God is going to do for us, how Christ is preparing us to be like him, to do what he's called us to do. But I think there's one other part of that message that I didn't communicate clearly is what is our responsibility? Who are we as disciples? So I want to talk today about what is a disciple and what has God actually called the disciple to be and what does a, a disciple actually look like? You're going to find the word disciple that's used in the Bible probably way over 200 times. It's used about 260 times the word disciple. In all but two times that word is used, it's used as a noun to describe a person. Only two times it is actually used as a verb to describe something that a person does. Now, if you're not into English and grammar, you're probably like, what difference does that make? The reason I bring it up is because sometimes we look as a disciple more of something we do instead of something who we become. And all through the New Testament, you see that a disciple is somebody that you become. The two times that it's used as a verb is when it's talking in the Great Commission about you going and making disciples. And that's actually more of a reference, actually, to evangelism. So last week, we talked a lot about James, or of John 15, that whole parable about the vines and the branches. I'm actually going to use that same scripture, that same text this week. 
but I'm going to approach it from a little different standpoint. Last week, we talked about how what God does for us to connect us to the vine and the branches. This week, what I want to do is talk about it from the reference of us being a disciple and what is our responsibility as a vine that is connected to a branch. Because sometimes this is a tricky area that I think we lose a little bit of our understanding of how do we relate as a disciple. Last week, I read the verse from John 15, verse 2 and 3. This is a very common verse that we talk about. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, it may bear more fruit. This was kind of the central text that we talked about last week, about what does Christ do in our life that we would actually bear fruit. And we get a little bit hung up on this verse when it says, every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We read that translation that he takes away, and sometimes we approach that and we think, oh my. If I'm not good enough, then he's going to take me away. If I'm not bearing fruit enough, then I must be in some kind of trouble that he's going to take me away and do something. And as James Montgomery uh, Smith, who's a James Montgomery Boyce, who's a very famous uh, theologian, he writes that sometimes that verse is confusing the way we translate it. We read it, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he says, actually, a more accurate, a more literal interpretation of the Greek is, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And when you read this in context of Jesus talking about the vines and the branches, this suddenly makes a lot of sense. Because Jesus is giving an illustration of how vines and how branches grow. And he's saying to his apostles that you are a vine that's connected to a branch. And all these disciples understood very well that vines in a vineyard grow on the ground. The only reason that they grow up is that you see them in Napa Valley or you might see them in northern Michigan grapes is because you see trellises all over where people learn that you have to take vines in the branch and you have to prop them up to live. And that whole section of scripture about vines and branches is actually what God is going to do in your life so you don't grow on the ground. Because if a branch grows on the ground, it will never, ever bear fruit. It has to be lifted up off the ground so it gets the proper air circulation, it gets the proper sunlight, and the, and the fruit does not lay on the ground and rot and mold. So the whole picture that this, this section of Scripture is giving us is what God is going to do for you and what he's going to do for me, that he's going to lift you up off the ground so you can bear fruit. In that verse, we take a lot of comfort in that because we take comfort in knowing that God is the one who is directing the fruit that's going to be born in our life. But then what is our part? It's easy to sit back sometime and say, well, God's going to do it all. God is God, so I'm just going to trust him. Well, that's nice. That's nice that you have that dependence on God. But what about that discipline part? See, kind of sometimes we kind of flop. We're not sure if we need to be totally dependent on God and then sometimes we don't do enough or we have so much discipline in our life that we have no dependence on Christ. We put it on ourselves. So today I want to talk about what is, what is that mixture? What does it look like to be a disciple? So what is a disciple? See, in our American culture, sometimes we get the word disciple and student confused. We think the two of them are synonyms. Or we get the word disciple and we get the word leadership development kind of as synonyms. And I want to tell you today that's not a, what a disciple is. Now, yeah, part of a disciple is a student. A student somebody that goes and learns and maybe gets to a point of graduation. Or it is a, a person that learns leadership development, learns how to live other people. But in the first century, in the century that Jesus walked this earth, that the, 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 the 
a disciple is very different from what we have in our minds. In fact, a true disciple follows the teachings and practices of another person in order to become just like that person. That was the goal of a disciple in the New Testament. You follow the teachings of someone else so you could become just like that person. So if you were a disciple of Jesus back when Jesus walked the earth, your goal was that you would spend so much time with him, you would become like Jesus. You would act like Jesus. You would behave like Jesus, and you would respond like Jesus. The goal of a disciple was to develop the character of the one that you are following. Back in 2015, Eddie Redmayne received an Academy Award for his role as the best actor in the movie called The Theory of Everything. It's one of my few favorite movies. It was a movie that was based on the life of Stephen Hawking. And so if you don't know, if not familiar with Stephen Hawking, he was a very famous um, professor at Oxford University in physics, probably one of the most brilliant minds that walked on this planet, and he... Uh, developed a neuromuscular disease in his early adulthood that turned into ALS. And so it was a very debilitating disease. It's one of those diseases that starts out mild and then progresses through his life to where he was ended up in a wheelchair with an augmentative communication device. So this movie, The Theory of Everything, is going to be a movie on the life of Stephen Hawking. And so Eddie Redmayne got the lead, the lead role is to play Stephen Hawking, which is going to be a very, very difficult role to, uh, to, to, to do because you have to follow the life of Stephen Hawking from when he was an able-bodied young man to where he progressed and was in a wheelchair totally dependent on other people for care. So Eddie Redmayne couldn't just pick up a script and say, okay, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn the script so I can recite it back on screen. Instead, he had to learn what is it like to have ALS when you're in your 20s and when you're in your 30s and when you're in your 40s. So it was a big role for him to play. So after he got the Academy Award, people went to Eddie Redmayne and they said to him, how in the world did you pull that off? How did you become so convincing that you won the Academy Award? And he basically summarized the four things that he did to prepare for that role to be Stephen Hawking. He said the number first thing he had to do was he had to spend time with Stephen Hawking. He actually had to spend time in the room with Stephen Hawking to understand him, to be around him, to understand kind of like what's in his heart. And so after he spent a lot of time with Stephen Hawking to kind of get to know him as a man, he said the next thing that he had to do was that he had to study everything about Hawking's life. Eddie Redman went on to say that it was almost like preparing a doctoral dissertation where he had to study every single video that was on Stephen Hawking. Any, any YouTube video that had Stephen Hawking on it, he went and he watched it. He watched everything so he could understand how did this man walk when he was in his 20s and how did he sit in his wheelchair when he was in his 30s and his 40s. He chronicled the entire life of Stephen Hawking so he could watch how this man acted at every point in his life. He said the third thing that he did was he had to read every single thing that Stephen Hawking ever wrote and tried to read everything that was written about him. Now, that was a very difficult thing for a Hollywood actor to read something that came from an Oxford University professor on physics. So Eddie Redman had to hire a tutor to help him to understand what was going on in Eddie Redman and going on in Stephen Hawking's mind. 
so he could understand that so it could come for so he could act that way and the final thing that he did was that he hired a choreographer to help him to know how to walk and how to talk and how to act and how to how to adjust his gait for a man with ALS and so the end Stephen Hawking said that he had to spend time Eddie Redmond said he had to spend time with Stephen Hawking. He had to study him, he had to watch him, and he had to practice. His goal was to be just like Stephen Hawking so he could be very convincing on the big screen. And obviously he was convincing enough, convinced enough that he won the Academy Award. And Stephen Hawking even said with a tear in his eye, he said, there's times I watched that movie, I thought it was me on the screen. That's how good of a job he did. And that is what a disciple is called to do. A disciple is called to study and to follow and to spend time with the person you are trying to become. So you become so much like that other person that other people might would see the person that you're trying to be. It was the relationship that Eddie Redmayne formed with Stephen Hawking's that gave him the ability and the confidence to act out the role. So when we go to Galatians 5, we, we, we go to the scripture and there's Galatians 5, there's two verses that we read that are kind of famous. The first one is for freedom, Christ has set us free. We read that verse and we get excited. God came to give us freedom for no other reason just to give us freedom. Now later on in Galatians 5 verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We read these two scriptures together and we often think that God gives us freedom so that we can produce this in our life. We often see God gives us freedom and then we read that as a command. Now that is what you are going to do. That is what you are going to become. And that's not actually accurate. That's not really accurate. In that Galatians 5, he doesn't tell you to that is not a command. Instead, the command in Galatians 5 is verse 16 that says, but walk by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, verse 18, it says, led by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, it says, live by the Spirit. That is what God has called each of us to do, to be led by the Spirit, to be directed by the Spirit, and to live our life in the Spirit. Galatians 5 is all about the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit that ultimately produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. But so often we try hard thinking, but if I do this, if I do that, then I'm going to have that fruit produced in my life. We live in this culture that likes to talk about what you choose you can become. Well, if I'm like not very patient, but I can choose patient, I can become patient, that doesn't work. You can choose to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit if you want to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we can see Galatians 5 as this whole summary of what does it look like to be a disciple. To be a disciple, you are dependent on the one that you are trying to imitate, and then you see the fruit of that develop in your life. So what did it look like being a disciple in the first century? What did the word disciple actually mean? If you go back to the Hebrew text, the Hebrew word for disciple is Talmud. That's a word in the Hebrew that was used in the Greek, and it's a word that's very good to understand because I think the Lord wants us to understand what that first century disciple looked like so we can understand what a disciple would look like in our days. 
So the key to being a good disciple is always the relationship with a rabbi who is the teacher and the disciple who is the student. So the, the Talmud in Jesus' day or the disciple didn't just go to school a few hours a day. It wasn't like going to seminary that you might, you know, have a few classes here and there and that you check in, check out, go home and do your homework. But instead, a rabbi or a student in that day or the disciple in that day, the Talmud, would actually spend 24-7 with the rabbi that they were trying to become like. See, the primary goal was to live with your rabbi, and so you knew everything they did. You knew how they acted, how they behaved, and how they responded to different circumstances. Because the more time that you would spend with your rabbi, the better chance that you would have to become like that rabbi. So how did this all happen? See, now Jesus, you probably remember reading in the Gospels, it talks about how Jesus went to this area in Galilee, and then he found his own disciples. You're wondering, okay, how did that all happen? Now, it's interesting, back in Jesus' day, there was this, Jesus, as you know, was born in Bethlehem, and he lived in this area called Galilee. He pretty much lived around the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Sea. It's basically a big lake. It's, not a, it's, not a, it's actually a small lake if you're from Michigan. If you go around the Sea of Galilee, I think the border of the lake is only about 30 or 40 miles if you wanted to walk around it, where like Lake Michigan, I think, is 11 or 1,200 miles if you wanted to walk around it. So Sea of Galilee is not that big, but it's kind of a, talked about a lot in the Bible because Jesus lived on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So on the coast of the Sea of Galilee was one town called Salafathus. Yeah, it's close enough. And um, on that town, that, that was a town, that was kind of the big city on the Sea of Galilee. That would be referred to, in our culture, you would call it an elite coastal city. That was kind of the fancy city on the Sea of Galilee. That's where all the really smart and educated people lived. That is where, when you see those old pictures from like uh, Israel, like the Greek culture, you'll see the Colosseums. You'll see the amphitheaters. You'll see like libraries. They actually had universities. So this was kind of like your big city. Maybe this is your New York or your London. This actually did have university. Now you would expect it if Jesus was going to go find his disciples, he would go to this town to find them because that's where all the smart people were. All the university people were there. Yeah, go to that town to find really good smart people. Jesus didn't go to that area. Jesus went to the other side of the lake in the area that's commonly referred to as Galilee that was kind of his hometown not too far from Bethlehem and that is where Jesus went to find his disciples. I think sometimes we wonder why would you go to that small little town because the town that he went to first was maybe a town of maybe 600 people tops and that's where he found his apostles like James and Peter and John and Philip and Andrew. He found them there and you're like why did Jesus go to that little area? Well, there's a reason for it because that coastal part of Galilee was actually known as the epicenter if you wanted to be a, di a disciple in the Jewish faith. If you were serious about studying the Old Testament, studying the first five books, the Torah, you would go to that section of Galilee because that is where all the smart rabbis are. And that's where the best education is. So if you wanted to be a good disciple, a good student, move to that area and hopefully you could find a rabbi that would mentor you. So what you would need to do if you wanted a rabbi to mentor you, you actually had to start being prepared even from a very young age. So the school system in that area is actually pretty impressive. I think sometimes we look back at that time and we think, probably didn't have much of a school, but it had a pretty solid school system, if especially if you were a Jewish family, because a goal in a Jewish family was to raise your son that they would become 
very well educated so that they could become a rabbi someday. So all the boys and girls would actually go to school from like about five years old to about an early teenager, kind of like elementary and middle school. So your kids would go to school and they would learn reading and writing and math and all that stuff, but they also would be the heavy emphasis on learning Old Testament, learning the Torah. So the goal was that when your child would get done, you know, maybe about that early teenager year, they would be so smart that they would be so, have such a good understanding of Old Testament that they would actually be, get to go on to the next level of education, which is a little bit more like high school. And this was kind of reserved for the guys. So after, after this, you know, middle school, maybe the girls, maybe the guys that weren't that sharp, they would go home and learn the family trade, or then the girls would kind of go home and kind of learn some domestic skills, while the really smart guys went on to this high school. And your goal was, if you could finish the high school, and you were really smart, and had a lot of aptitude, and you had a lot of charisma, that you would be good enough that another rabbi would pick you up and say, you can be my student, you can become my disciple. So in order to be a disciple, you had to be smart, you had to have a lot of, uh, you had a lot of um, energy, you had to have a lot of capability, you had to have a lot of dynamic, that you could prove to a rabbi that you are worthy to follow them and that you would actually put the time and effort into becoming like your rabbi. So this is a school structure that you would grow up in, in this Galilee area that's the epicenter of discipleship, that you had to prove it that you qualified to be a disciple. And then what would happen is this person, that, this young man that graduated from the high school, if they had the capability, they would come up to a rabbi and they would say to the rabbi, may I follow you? And then that rabbi would say, okay, you can follow me maybe for a week or two and I can check you out and make sure that you have what it takes. And if you don't have what it takes, you're gone. If you do what I have it takes, you could follow that rabbi around for a while and hopefully you would become like that rabbi. That's a really good plan if you're one of those top students and you can make it. But if you weren't that sharp, these guys would now have to go back and kind of learn the family trade. And that would be pretty disappointing, especially if you spent your whole school life and your goal was to become a rabbi. The dream would be taken away from you. So Jesus comes on scene, and Jesus is a rabbi. And instead of people going up to Jesus saying, may I follow you, Jesus walks around and starts saying to people, you can follow me. That's a radical different approach to finding a disciple. See, before Jesus came on scene, a disciple was based on your ability, what you could do and what you could prove. And suddenly Jesus comes by and says, no. I'll be your rabbi. I'm calling you. It doesn't matter what you're capable of. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how much of the Old Testament that you've memorized. None of that matters. What matters is that I am calling you to follow me. That is a radical departure from the way discipleship looked in that first century. When Jesus would come in and say, I want you to follow me because it's based on my performance, not your performance. See, those rabbis were selective who they're going to let follow them because if that student didn't perform well, it looked bad on the rabbi. How could you have a student that actually didn't perform well and do well? But now Jesus comes on scene and says, uh-uh, I'll take that burden on me because I know 
that your performance is based on me. It has nothing to do with your ability. And so that's how Jesus came in. That was good. That's all right. So that was a whole beautiful scene that when Jesus comes on board and says, you can follow me because it's based on what I can do. So when those early disciples would actually get picked by Jesus to follow him, we know him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples that he had, and the other disciples, they followed Jesus just like the other guys follow the other rabbis. There was two things that a young disciple would do. They would follow the rabbi, and they would have complete trust in the rabbi because they wanted to become just like them. Jesus' disciples had to put forth the same effort as the other disciples put in their rabbi. They didn't get it easy just because Jesus called them to follow him. That, meant, that didn't mean that they could stay home and they really didn't have to study that hard or they didn't have to follow after Jesus. They did the same thing. They followed Jesus 24-7. They went wherever he went. They read what he was reading. They listened to Jesus' study. And that's why we, we talk about in those towns where they would have their synagogues. And it often talks about how Jesus would be teaching in the synagogue. He would actually be teaching his disciples. And other people might join in and listen to it as well. But in Jesus' day, not everybody became a disciple. A disciple was reserved for people who wanted to put the effort and the energy into it. But when Jesus came on board, he's suddenly calling everybody to be his disciples. So now we're going to go back to John 15 that we talked about last week. Last week we talked about it through the grid of what does God do for me to help me to become a disciple. Now I want to look at it through the grid of what do we do? What is our part to become the disciple that God has created us to be? So we start out in James 15, verse 1. The very first verse it reads, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. Now this would be a very interesting word for his disciples to listen to. Because I said last week, Jesus, this is, Jesus is in his final hours with his disciples before he is going to be going. The next day, he will be actually crucified. So this is the night before Jesus is crucified. He's spending an intimate evening with his disciples. They've been talking about Jesus' plans. Jesus is kind of referring to his death, referring to his resurrection. The disciples really don't know what's happening. But Jesus, when he gets done with a meal with them, he says, okay, let's go outside. And now they're walking. They're probably going to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And while they're walking, Jesus says this story. He starts a parable with, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dressers. More than likely, they're walking through an area where there's a lot of vines and a lot of vine dressers, or a lot of trellises where the vines are growing. And so the vine was a well-known crop in Israel. Vines were everywhere. But in the Old Testament, you might recall that in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about vines. It talks a lot about vineyards. But every single time the Old Testament talks about vine and vineyards, it's in the negative sense. It's in the negative sense because it's talking about Israel. And it's talking about how Israel abandoned their God. And about Israel was like a runaway, and, and Isaiah says that Israel was like a runaway vine that produced sour grapes. So when those apostles are walking and Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, my father's a vine dresser, they're probably going back to the references about Israel and kind of wondering what is going to happen. Once Israel was a true vine, now Jesus is a true vine. How is this going to play out? 
And that's why we go to verse 2 when we hear the translation about James Montgomery Boyce. This would be a big relief to the apostles because it says every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he's going to lift up. And that's good news because in their mind, when you talk about branches, you're talking about Israel, the runaway branch on the ground. And those apostles are wondering, is this going to be that all over again? But what Jesus says to you, no, I will lift you up so you could bear fruit. Now, this would be in very, very encouraging news to the disciples because they are so used to Israel's failures. And they are so used to Israel having to try harder and harder to produce fruit. And God's saying, no, but now what I'm going to do, I'm going to change it. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to take the responsibility on so you can bear fruit. But when we talk about fruit, when we talk about bearing fruit, I think a lot of times in our culture, we go right to evangelism. When we say, are you bearing fruit? It's like, have you been witnessing? Have you been sharing the gospel? Or we say, are you bearing fruit in your life? You're thinking, well, have I been mentoring somebody else? We generally go there. That's not what the scripture is really talking about. The text is going back to Galatians 5 that I read earlier about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is again produced by the relationship that you have with the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not something you produce by what you are doing. Again, it's that noun about who you are because of what the Spirit is producing in your own life. That's why the reference of God lifting you up is so important because he is producing in you something you can never produce on your own. And then so abide in me. We're going back to John uh, verse, four, verse 4 and 5 where it says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And see again how this is happening according to Galatians 5. The spirit produces a fruit and you walk in the spirit. See, abide in me. This is that active voice. This is something that we are expected to do. We imitate. We remain. We follow. That's walking in the Holy Spirit. That's the reference back to spending 24-7 with a rabbi. We learn how to do things by watching, by being with, and about studying, and about practice. And that's what I want to do a couple weeks from now. I want to talk about what are these spiritual disciplines that we actually do as followers of Jesus Christ? What are we actually supposed to do? And I know we talk about prayer and about fasting and about reading the word and studying and, and expressing gratitude and, and thanksgiving and that and singing. What, what do I want to talk about that a little bit more? And so then this text goes on. It says, abide in me. Okay, that's what I do. That's the active part that I need to do in my life. But then it says an I in you. That's always God's response. That's how fruit is grown. Fruit is grown by the branch that initiates the vine. See, it takes both of these attributes. It takes discipline and it takes dependence. You can't have one without the other. And sometimes I think we err on the side too. It's all up to us. If there's anything good going to come out of my life, it's all up to me. I better show a lot of discipline. I need to be very serious. And we do that over and over in that discipline. Or we go to the other side where we think, nope, I'm just, God's going to do what God's going to do. And I just really don't have a part in it. And we kind of don't do anything. 
It's that combination of getting together both discipline and dependence if we are going to bear fruit. I like what uh, Ray Stedman says, he's a theologian. He says, what we need to learn is that it doesn't take only gas. But our responsibility is to keep the tank full. And that's kind of what God's doing on our part. He's saying, I'm going to drive this thing for you, but you need to keep that tank full, which is that metaphor of abiding in the vine that it goes back to. And then John, and then verse 6 goes on to say, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. See, this is the dramatic verse. This is the hard verse of the chapter. What happens to a person that's not connected to the vine? They would wither and they would die and there's no use. This is why Christianity is not very well liked by some people. Because the black and white issues, you're either connected to the vine or you're not connected to the vine. And I think Jesus puts that in here to remind his disciples this is serious what we're doing. This whole call to evangelism, this whole call to share in this gospel is important because some people are not connected to the branch and their life is not going to end well. And so in the midst of Jesus encouraging his disciples, I'm going to lift you up. He's reminding them that some people are not lifted up, so you got to do your part so people can have a relationship. And then the last part of this section of Scripture, verse 7 through 10, goes and it talks about what are the benefits or what is the evidence of being a disciple. I know we have the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace and the patience that happens to us naturally as we rely on the Spirit independent. But this text ends with four specific things that happen from your reliance on God and becoming more and more like a disciple. In verse 7 it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then whatever you wish, it will be done for you. This means whatever you pray for will be done for you. See, this is the first evidence of the fruitful life is answer prayers. It's interesting, he says, whatever will be done for you, you pray it will be done. I think some of you are like a little suspicious because I prayed and it hasn't been done. But what this text is telling us, when you abide in Christ, whatever you need, you will get. Now that's hard because sometimes I think I need some other things that God's not in agreement with me. But that's the confidence a disciple can have. When you walk with your rabbi, those disciples knew whatever they needed, the rabbi would give them. Whatever was necessary for that Talmud, that disciple, to become like the rabbi, they would get. When you're dependent on your rabbi, you get whatever you need for you to become Christ-like. And the second thing is in verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciple. And again, that goes to that, that part of what God does. You're dependent on him. He produces a fruit in you. And as a result, God is glorified. God is glorified by the fruit that he produces in you. That takes the pressure off us. And it puts the pressure on God. Because he's the one who's producing the fruit. The pressure on me, I just abide in the vine. And we go on verse 9 through 10, which tells you how you abide in the vine. It says, As Jesus has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and, and abide in his love. See, that's the life force of the vine, is the love of God. 
That's what we are abiding in, his love. The opposite of his love is fear. And we know that God has called us to abide in his love because the love casts out fear. If you talk to most people, they can have challenges with, ins with insecurities or rejection or not feeling valuable. But see what God does. He says, you live in my life force of my love and I will cast out of you anything in you that doesn't resemble me. See, the only way to overcome these paralyzed feelings that some of us experience is when you are connected to the life force of love in the vine. And that's what happens, disciple of Jesus Christ. When you abide in that vine, things happen in your life that there's no other way to explain except God did something. And the final thing, the fourth thing we read in verse 11, it said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God wants you to have joy. God wants your joy to be full. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, there's an interesting verse about Jesus. It says, for Jesus, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And you wonder, why would Jesus go to the cross when he knew the pain? And he knew the shame that he would experience. And this text tells us he did it for the joy that was set before him. It doesn't sound to me like there's a whole lot of joy in going to a cross to be hurt severely and to endure shame and rejection. But Jesus said that was joyful for him. And I often wonder why would Jesus think that is joyful? I would kind of think that's the opposite. I might say I'd go under obligation, but to go under joy is a whole different. See, Jesus did that. The joy that was set before Jesus is that he knew the millions of lives that would change because of what he was going to do. That was the joy that was set before Jesus. The joy of seeing lives changed by seeing people come to faith, by seeing people come to freedom, by seeing people come to wholeness. The joy set before Jesus was to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit produced in people. That was the joy that Jesus was focusing on. Jesus wasn't focusing on what the experience that he would have. He was focusing on the experience that he would have. And that's the beauty of what Jesus did. He was focused on us and not on himself. So he could endure the shame and the humiliation because he knew that we could experience the opposite. And that's why Jesus tells us to go and tell. Because he wants us to experience that kind of joy as well. When we see other people come to faith, when we see other people's lives transformed and renewed, that we would experience joy like Jesus experienced. That's why we get to go and tell. It's our privilege because we're going to experience joy that there's no other way to experience besides doing what Jesus has called us to do.
This is a command of Jesus to go and tell, but we sure get a lot of benefits for doing that. So God, I do thank you today that you are a God who tells us to go and tell, that you are a God who has told us to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And Father, that is just amazing that you would trust us to be your representatives. And Lord, I know that you trust us because you are confident of the work that you have done in our lives, that we would be effective ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I thank you for each person here, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you continue to do that work in their life, Lord, so that they are effective ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Lord, again, I thank you for the women of this church that are working on that day, Caloris weekend, Lord, that they are going there with the character that you have developed in them, that they would go into that weekend and that they would be Christ-like to these other women, that these women would see you when they see these team. And Lord, thank you that you're doing that in each of us. Because, Lord, the message that we have is important. The script that we have to read from is important. But, Lord, it's more important to you or just as important. The change that you do in our life. So, God, I pray that you just continue to move in our life. That we would become more like our rabbi. That when people look at us, they would see more of who Jesus is. That the character of Jesus Christ, people would see in us. Lord, help us to be dedicated. Help us to be focused. Help us to be disciplined. But help us, Lord, to be dependent as well. God, I thank you for what you're doing here and what you're going to continue to do. Oh, Lord, we love you so much and thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name.